Father, we just thank you today that while we were in captivity and we were broken and we were lost, you made a choice to set us free. And Lord, a lot of times in this world, we, we don't really know where we belong or where we fit in and we, we struggle to figure out where we should go and what we should do. Sometimes, Father, it's because we just get older and we're not a part of the crowd and the circle that we used to be. Sometimes it's that we're in that difficult age between childhood and adolescence or maybe between being in college and being an adult. and We just don't know where we fit into the world. And Father, I just thank you that even though this world maybe changes and we get lost and feel like we're not really significant and important, that we know, Lord, that with you we are, and that we have a place that you've prepared for us to spend all of eternity with you. Father, that's enough, more than enough, and we just thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that you have called us worthy, even though we know we aren't worthy, that you have, you have changed our our worth from being worthless to being worth the life of your own son. And I just pray, Father, this morning as we open your word and we, we recognize the things that you have to say to us in it, that, Father, we might, we might just recognize the opportunity you've laid in our lap and that we might just run with all of our strength and all of our, all of our endurance toward the goals that you're set out for us in life and help us to, help us to learn to walk as Jesus walked and to follow you as Jesus followed you. Open our hearts to your word as we open it today, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, through the last few weeks, we've been, in fact, the last six or seven weeks, maybe eight weeks now, we've been taking a journey as we walk follow Jesus on a relatively short miles-wise journey, but what ends up being about a six-month journey between where he was in the Luke the ninth chapter and where we find ourselves now in Luke 19. We've covered just but 10 books in the, in the book of Luke, and yet we've, we've covered so much significant territory. And if you've been reading along with us, you recognize that we have skipped as much as we've covered and maybe even more. And we find ourselves now in Luke, the 19th chapter. Jesus is literally miles away from Jerusalem. And in fact, in Luke 19, Jesus is going to walk, ride through the gates of Jerusalem as the king that he always was. This Sunday, we, we, we often refer to as Palm Sunday, and we do that because this is the, the Sunday that we remember that Jesus rode through the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Then that's in the middle portion or so of Luke, the 19th chapter. And there's a lot of interesting things that happened right there, right? Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go ahead of me a little bit, and you're going to find a, a little young colt, an unbroken little donkey right here. And, uh, and just if anyone asks, just say the master needs it, but go ahead and take that and bring that to me. And then Jesus gets on this little young donkey and he rides uh, into the gates of Jerusalem. And the people in a moment finally recognize who Jesus is, right? There's that moment of realization for the world that he is the Messiah, that he is coming. And a lot of that comes with the fact of what Jesus is doing as he approaches Jerusalem. Um, Zechariah, the ninth chapter in verse number nine, there's this passage right there where every Jewish person would have known this. This was one of those things that they were looking toward. And it says this, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here Jesus appears, and he's, they already, Jesus has a large entourage that's been following him for the last half of his journey. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about the sermon on the crowd, right? There's this whole group of people that are just around Jesus, and this entourage is going to follow Jesus through the gates of the city. But as he does so, and he's riding now on a donkey, they get palm branches, and they begin to wave them in the air. They take off their coats, and they lay them on the street. They're welcoming him as a conquering ruler, right? But the, the interesting symbolism there is that Jesus is riding on a donkey, I don't know how many of you guys have had any experience with a donkey, necessarily. Anybody had any experience with a donkey in here this morning? All right, some of us have had experience. Donkeys, if you've never had experience with a donkey, I have two bits of advice for you. Um, number one, be careful, because they, they are, they're ornery, they're vicious, all right? Yesterday, I was, at a, I was going to a wedding, and I noticed on the way to this little wedding venue, um, there's, this, there's this pin with these no trespassing signs on it with this tall, tall fence with that barbed wire stuff like this. And inside of this, of this pin is this rather docile-looking donkey. And I'm thinking to myself, either he just has a really good pin or that's one bad mambo-jambo donkey right there. I don't know which, but, uh, but you can't help but smile if you hear a donkey bray, all right? I know you guys would love for me to do my donkey bray this morning, but you're out of luck, all right? Um, but uh, it, is, it is fun. It's just fun. I, can't, I can't help but smile when I hear them, you know, get going. Um, and we used, to, we used to have some friends that used to watch one uh, for a petting zoo up the road. I think his name, was, his name was Jimbo. And if I remember right, Jimbo had, done, had spent a good bit of his early life before retirement to the petting zoo. He had spent his early life as a part of a donkey basketball team. Now, if you've ever, any of you guys ever seen a donkey basketball, some of us older people here, they used to come through when I was a kid in, uh, in the Midwest, right? For those of you who have never heard of this, and you're like, what is a donkey basketball team? It, it, they got a bunch of donkeys, and then they get a bunch of people in town that sign up for this, and it's like a charity event, right? They put little rubber shoes on these donkeys, and, and then they put the donkeys in a gym, and they give you a basketball, and you try to play basketball while riding a donkey. All right, now, you talk about funny. It, it is a funny thing to watch, and the donkeys are all trained because at certain times, there'll be cues that are given, and all the donkeys will do a stunt. Jimbo knew all the stunts, and he loved to do that, right? I would try to get on back of Jimbo, and he'd take off right there, then he would just stop like that, slide off, or he'd, he'd drop down on his front legs, or he'd roll over. Uh, donkeys are ordinary. And so you have this image of Jesus, the conquering king, palm branches waving, coats on the road before him, and he's riding in the town on a donkey. Not just any donkey, but like a little donkey, a young donkey, a small donkey. What, what was Jesus doing right there? Well, there's a couple of things. I think Jesus was being very, very deliberate. Number one, he knew the passage in Zechariah, certainly, and God knew that that's how Jesus would ride into the city. But Jesus was also riding in, not as we see him in the book of Revelation, because when we see Jesus again in the book of Revelation, he's, he's on a horse, right? He's on a white horse, a powerful animal, and he's making a grand and conquering entrance. But this time the king comes into the city. He's coming in as a humble servant. He's coming in not as the conqueror, but ultimately he will be the one who is conquered, at least in this life. The second thing I always think of when I think of how Jesus rode into the city is, is the fact that 
it harkens back to another journey. Generations before that, over a thousand years before this moment, when, when the first person that God spoke to, Abraham, was called by God to take a similar journey. God told Abraham, Abraham, I want to know that there's nothing more important to you than me. And so what I want you to do is I want you to give and offer your one and only son that you've waited until you're an old, old man and a half. I want you to offer this one son as a sacrifice. Now, God never had an intention of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice, but it was a, it was a test, if you will, of Abraham's loyalty. And one of the images you see there is Isaac is riding on a donkey. And Abraham says something remarkable. Abraham, when Isaac says, hey, Dada, we've got fire and we've got wood, but you didn't remember the sacrifice. And Abraham says, with eyes of faith, I believe, to his son Isaac, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. And now all this time later, God has patiently worked through the millennia and in the perfect time, at the perfect moment, his son is making an entrance into the city right on cue. But how do we get there? How do we get there? If I can this morning, I want to ask you a couple questions, and I should have written blanks for these in your handout, so I apologize. You can write it in the margins of your handout if you want to, but I want to ask you a couple questions this morning, and they're this. Why are you here today? What is your purpose in life? We all have one. We maybe don't necessarily stop and think about it, but, but I want you to think about that today. Obviously, you don't have to write that down, but what is that? And I, I know, I know that we all know the correct Sunday school answer, at least most of us do, right? Right, if you ask me that question, I have a great answer. It's gonna sound something like this. I'm here to bring glory and honor to God, all right? It's a good Sunday school answer, right? You're like, kudos to Jason, all right? But, but here, the follow-up question that I have for you is this. Does your life really display that purpose? Is how you're living really pointing to that purpose for your life? I want you to think about that question as we kind of roll through this text today. Because in reality, Luke the 19th chapter ends, well, rather bombastically. <laughs> Jesus is cleans, cleansing the temple. He's riding into the city as the king, right? Those are the ending portions of, of Luke the 19th chapter. But Luke the 19th chapter begins completely different. And it just helps us to understand why Jesus was able to do what he did. And, and really the answer that I, I want us to pause and look at today is that Jesus lived his life on purpose. And that started a long, long time before this moment as a triumphant uh, ruler entering the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus was 12 years old, Luke, the second chapter, tells us that he went on a trip with his family, and this is a trip that all Jewish kids really look forward to because it was an opportunity for them to almost kind of experience just a little taste of adulthood. And so he got to go with his family as they worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. And this was a big family affair. Jerusalem, we're told, historians tell us that there were millions of people in the city, um, everyone there worshiping, preparing themselves, getting washed and ceremonially cleansed to bring their family sacrifice to the temple. There was this whole mechanism that was built around the temple of offering sacrifices, of dealing with the carnage of offering those sacrifices. This was a very, busy, very, very busy place. And, and so Jesus, um, Jesus and his family go there and they experience this whole thing. His family leaves. They're like a day down the road when Joseph and Mary's like, man, I haven't seen Jesus for a while. Joseph, you've seen? No, no, where, where is he? 
He's not here. We've left him back in Jerusalem. And so as any panic-stricken parent would, they make the return journey. They head back into the city of Jerusalem. They're looking everywhere for Jesus, and they can't find him. And finally, maybe out of desperation, or maybe the temple was like a lost and found location for kids. I don't know. But they go back to the temple, and lo and behold, here's Jesus. Now, for those of you who are who are 10, 11, 12, or even a little bit older than that this morning. I want you guys to catch this. This is huge. Jesus is a 12-year-old, what we would say, kid, right? And they find him in the temple, number one, and they find him having a spiritual conversation with the older people, the teachers of the law, in the temple. They're blown away by this. In fact, let's just look at it. Verse 48 of Luke, the second chapter. It says, when they saw him, they were amazed, as most parents would be. They probably thought, no, my kid's going to be out running around the street somewhere, right? They should have known (laughs) it was Jesus, right? But they'd forgotten. And his mother said to him, as moms will do. This is is how you know the Bible is just kind of like the word of God, because this is exactly what a mom's going to say right here. Son, why have you done this to us, right? <laughs> My mom probably said those kinds of words to me a thousand times. What were you thinking? What are you doing, Jason? Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. <laughs> I love this too. She brings dad in with it. Hey, your dad and I have been worked up. Now, if I know the story a little bit, I know what happened. Joseph was mildly concerned and Mary was, <laughs> was freaking out, right? And so she had to bring Moses and hey, or I mean Moses, listen to me, where'd he come from? I don't know. I'm Joseph in. And he said, Joseph and I, we're, we're worried. We're worried, right? <laughs> Here's what Jesus comes back and says. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Well, that's kind of a crazy question. But did you not know that I would be about my father's business? says they didn't understand the statement which he spoke to them because they they didn't understand Jesus. But those of you who are younger in the room this morning, let me just emphasize something to you. You are never too young to get serious about your purpose of living for God. The quicker you get serious about that, the better off your life is going to go and the bigger the opportunities that God is going to be able to use you to, or to accomplish in life, the bigger opportunities are going to be afforded to you. No, notice here, Jesus is 12 years old and he's already completely uh, given over to the understanding of what he's going to do. He knows why he's here. His parents haven't even figured this out yet, but he does. <laughs> he knows why he's here. He knows what he's about to accomplish And he's just shocked that his mom and dad don't get it. They were worried about his safety. They were worried that he was lost in the city. He's like, don't worry about that. I'm just right here doing what I was made to do. It's never too early to start living out your purpose for God. Jesus did this at an extremely young age. But Jesus also was able to push through distractions. Maybe this is one of the things that in this lesson today all of us need to kind of perk up our ears to. I know it was convicting for me as I wrote this because in Luke, the fourth chapter, we, we find Jesus beginning his ministry around 16 or so years after this point. Jesus is 30 years old, so whatever the math is on that, 34. Anyway, anyway um, a few years down the road, um, Jesus is, has gone out. He has started his public ministry. And one of the first things that happens is that Jesus is, as the Bible says, carried by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, to, to be tested. And so for 40 days, 
Jesus finds himself isolated out here in the middle of the wilderness. And when it says wilderness, it means wilderness in that part of the world. And, and he's alone, uh, just praying and having a time of communion with God. But he's very, very hungry. And at the end of this period, Satan decides, now is a perfect time for me to show up. And so he shows up and he begins to test Jesus. And I want you to notice how he tests Jesus because he does the same thing with us today. He starts off and he says, Jesus, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus, why don't you make yourself comfortable? After all, Jesus, you have the power to do it. Don't you have the right to eat? Everyone has to eat. Why don't you, why don't you allow yourself to be distracted by this comfort? And of course, you remember that Jesus answers back, quoting scripture from Deuteronomy, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. I'm not just here to be comfortable. I'm not just here to eat a meal. I'm here for a purpose. Well, that doesn't work, and so Satan takes Jesus to a high place. He shows him every kingdom of the world, and he says, Jesus, look, it's all yours. All you have to do is just bow down and worship me. Jesus, you want to have power? Jesus, you want to have control? Jesus, you want to call the shots in this world? You care enough about it to show up here and become a part of this creation? It's all yours. You can have it. All you have to do is worship me. Again, Jesus quotes scripture. He said, we're not going to worship anyone except the Lord your God and him alone. So comfort didn't work. And, and, and power, that didn't work. And so finally, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. That's that iconic corner of the city of Jerusalem that you see in a lot of pictures today. But at that time, it was quite a little bit higher, we believe. And underneath that was this whole kind of center of worship that kind of fed into the temple. There were some gates, a big arch that would have gone up into the temple from that point, and the faithful would have carried their sacrifices after they had been purified, and all these mitzvahs that are built kind of down in that bottom part. And there's this great big street where there would have been all kind of commerce. This was the center of religious activity in Jerusalem right here. And, and Satan brings Jesus, and they stand there, in my mind's eye, on the pinnacle of the temple, on this corner of the temple and there's a considerable drop and Satan says, I'll tell you what, you want to be famous? Here's how you be famous in the world. Just jump off of here and then Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. That's slick, isn't he? He said, and, and the, the angels will just come and they'll, they'll bear you up that you, lest you bruise your foot on the stone. Jesus again quotes scripture back to Satan and he says, we don't test the Lord our God. Notice those three distractions that Satan uses, those three temptations, comfort, power, and fame. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because almost every one of us this morning that are struggling with sin find ourselves struggling, struggling with a sin that makes us comfortable, that gives us a sense of power and being in control, or makes us famous or noteworthy in some way or other. And Jesus was able to push through those distractions. He never forgot why he was here. We look at Jesus' life and we're like, Jesus never sinned, that's very true. But the reason that Jesus never sinned is that he never forgot his purpose in this world. I think sometimes why a lot of us as Christian people kind of struggle with this stuff, and we do, right? We're like, we're, we're, 
we're, we got our, our minds just full of, of challenges and of distractions and of temptations and we're tormented by these things. We've forgotten that our ultimate purpose is bigger than just our own comfort. Our ultimate purpose is not that we are just in control of the world and we can manipulate everything around us so that we feel safe. Our ultimate purpose is not just that our name is known, but our ultimate purpose is that his name is known, that his things are accomplished, that he is glorified through us. And Jesus understood that. And Satan, it says in the end of that text, he left and departed for a more opportune time. Jesus is like, well, this isn't gonna work today. I guess I'll try something else later. So Jesus knew his purpose from a very young age. Jesus pushed through temptation. But the third thing that Jesus did well is he was always aware of opportunities. And as you start the book of, or, or chapter 19 of the book of Luke, you see that just kind of lived out. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Luke 19, and we're gonna pick up in verse number one. <clears throat> and it says <clears throat> that he entered Jericho. I'm gonna read it here. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Luke decides that he's going to record a story for us. And I think Luke does this not because there's not an abundance of stories to record, but because it sets up something really important for us to catch about Jesus. I don't know what your mind would be full of a week before the cross, but it probably, if it's like mine, would not be full of the kinds of things that Jesus' mind was. I would be worried about what's coming. I would be worried about the disciples and how I needed to pour so much more into them. You, you look at both the book of Luke and the book of John, and you realize that a, a great amount of both of those books... Uh, really kind of is just built around that last week of Jesus' life. There's just so much that's going to happen in this last brief period. And, and certainly Jesus' mind could have been cluttered with all those things. Not probably uh, focused on, on, or my mind certainly would not be focused on, on opportunities. But here, here one presents itself. He's just passing through Jericho. It's a necessary town to go through. And there was this guy that... <laughs> that wanted to see him. And so in verse four, so he ran ahead and he climbs up in a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So here we have this all kind of set up, right? Jesus is just passing through town. And then he looks up and he sees a guy in a tree and he says, I want to go to your house today. And this is an extraordinary story because Zacchaeus was not just a regular guy. If there was ever a guy in the Bible that struggled with the very things that Jesus had pushed through, it was probably Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was very wealthy and apparently very comfortable individual. And he probably had created his entire life to be that way. He was certainly a guy that was looking for power because he was a tax collector. He was, a, he was an emissary of the Roman government to collect from people that were passing through the gateway to Jerusalem, which is what Jericho was. This was a big assignment. And not only was he just a tax collector, but he was a well-known tax collector. He was, as the Bible records, the chief of tax collectors. He was famous. 
He had the pieces that every person in the world are looking for, right? He was the guy who had the whole package. He was wealthy. He could insulate himself with his money. He was powerful, and he was well-known. But there was something that was lacking. And when he hears Jesus is coming to town, he's up in a tree to catch a look at him. I want to see this guy. I want, to, I want to understand this guy. I think there was something that drew Zacchaeus to Jesus. He <laughs> recognized there's something different about what he has to offer. I can be honest with you today and say that if that were Jason passing through that town, I may have never seen Zacchaeus because my mind would have been so confused or so full of the things that I had to do the tasks laying out in front of me, the apprehensions and anxieties that I was facing in Jerusalem. I'd be so focused on where I was walking or the people that were immediately around me that are my friends and I'm having conversations with that I probably would have never looked up and seen a guy sitting in a tree. But that's why we're not Jesus and he is. And he looks up in this tree and he immediately not recognizes that there's work to do here. And he says, Zacchaeus, get down. I've got to go and stay at your house today. Now, I like how this ends. It says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. I don't know who they is, but they never likes things like this. They always is upset about things like this. They see it. They all grumble. They all complain because Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. As if all of us aren't. As if they weren't. As if everyone in the world hadn't been at one point in time distracted by Satan's cunning schemes. No, they all had But the thing that's so important to get from this story is that Jesus was such a genuine example of who God wanted him him to be and who God wants us to be that it just had a transformational kind of effect on people because they're just having dinner here. And in verse number eight, Zacchaeus stands up in the middle of dinner, probably presumably to thank his guests for coming, right? But what actually happens is that Zacchaeus has this great moment of repentance, right? Because he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. All right, let me stop there real quickly. I know we're not super wealthy people here today, but I want you to think about half of your worldly possessions right now. You have two cars one of those cars. You have a house, you sell it and divide it in half. You have a bank account with a number in it, divide that by two. This is significant. <laughs> this guy is giving away half of the stuff that he has in the world. This is remarkable. Right? This isn't a guy that's just bandstanding because Jesus is in his house. This is a guy who's been genuinely transformed. And he goes on and he said, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it four times, fourfold. So if I, I've cheated people, and probably that had happened because that seems to be the kind of way that these Roman tax collectors worked. You know, $10, eh, about 12, you know. Jesus, he, Zacchaeus said, if I've defrauded people, I'm going back over my books. And if I stole $2 from you, you're getting back eight. This is tremendous. Right? This is unbelievable. This is transformation. And Jesus responds back in this way. He said, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Jesus said everyone else might not see that his, he's redeemable. Everyone else might not see that there's good in this guy. Everyone else might say that's Zacchaeus and he's lost forever, but I see a different side to Zacchaeus. 
I see a Zacchaeus whose heart still beats to the same drum that mine does. They didn't like it. But Jesus' genuine example led to a genuine transformation of this person. And then Jesus does something or says something that kind of tips his hand and helps us to see what really motivated Jesus. And Luke records it in verse number 10. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If you were to go ask Jesus the question that I asked you in the beginning of this, of this sermon this morning, what is your purpose in life? Why are you here? Jesus would answer that quickly. I'm here to seek and save the lost. And if you were to look at Jesus' life, how he lived, how he spoke, what he did, what he prioritized, you would recognize that his entire life was focused on that objective. In fact, you wouldn't even have to ask Jesus. You could just look at what he did and you would automatically be able to understand why he was here. And not only had he just figured this out at 33 years old, he had known this from the time he was 12. He had pushed through times where Satan tried his best to distract him from that goal. And here we are, but days away from the cross, and Jesus still understands exactly why he's here and what he's doing here. So that leads us really kind of this morning to where I would like to land for our sermon today, and that is simply this. Always, we need to always remember why we're here. Because there's a parable that's sandwiched between Zacchaeus and a triumphal entry. It's a parable that we don't often read a lot about, and it certainly doesn't make people's list of the favorite parables of Jesus, right? Last week, we took a look at the favorite parable of Jesus, probably the most famous parable of Jesus in the prodigal son. This one barely makes the list. We actually prefer its cousin, the parable of the talents, but they're actually two different parables, and, and, and they're for several reasons. One is that this, this parable is told on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, all right, with a large crowd of people. We get that from the text there. Um, the other thing is that, that there's the, the, the amounts of money are different. This is a, this is a, a mina uh, versus a, a talent. Talent is considerably more money than a mina, incidentally. Um, in this parable, all the people are given the same amount. They're each given one mina. Um, even though they have, as with the parable of the talents, different kind of results when they're investing. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, they're told into two very different places. So uh, this is a very different parable, but it's interesting that Jesus tells two parables along the same kinds of lines. And when you see that happening in Scripture, you kind of just follow where Jesus is headed, and you understand, while Jesus was talking to just the disciples in the parable of the talents, and in this case, he's talking to a large group of people on the road making this trip from Jericho to Jerusalem, that this is something that was on Jesus' heart. Jesus did not want these followers, these disciples, these people walking with him to ever forget why they were here. And he wanted them to know that someday they would be held accountable for how they invested what they were given. Jesus presents a parable really with two questions. And I'm going to just summarize the parable for best sake of time, but if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to read with me. It starts in chapter 19 of the book of Luke, verse 11, and kind of flows through there. But Jesus tells of a king, or per, pardon me, a nobleman who is going to a foreign country to be crowned king. 
And he calls three servants and he gives each of them a mina and he says, I want you to invest this, look over this while I leave and, when, and then I'm, uh, when I return, we'll settle our accounts. Now, after he leaves, there's a group of people, his subjects, that form a, a letter and they send it behind him and they say, don't crown him king. We don't want him to be our king. Now, you should understand that Jesus is talking about what he's walking into in Jerusalem, right? Because we know that Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem as king but he will walk out of Jerusalem on Friday as a convicted, as a convicted uh, 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 criminal, right? He's, not gonna, he's gonna be rejected. And he's kind of foreshadowing some of that, but that's the first question. And then, well, we'll talk about the second question in a moment. One of the questions that this parable gives to us is what are we going to do with Jesus? Now, you guys are in church this morning, so I think the vast majority of us have already made our minds up. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus has a right to call the shots in my life. Yes, Jesus is the one who I want to be my God. My Savior, yes, but my Lord also. You know, that kind of goes together. You can't just have a Savior Jesus. We've got to have a Savior and Lord Jesus. That was the first question. But the second question is this. We've been entrusted with a beautiful, beautiful gift, haven't we? And that's called life. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to, what are we going to do with that in the future? Are we going to use or neglect our gift to build up the kingdom? Every one of us has a gift of life. I got my notes all missed out of order, so it's not Mandy's fault if they're out of order. All of us have a gift of, a gift of life, guys. All of us have this opportunity. We've all been handed a mina by God. He's put that in our hand, and he said, it's yours. You use it. But how we use that, and for whose purpose we choose to use that, is our own. We can waste that on ourselves. We can say, you know what? I don't want Jesus to be the king of my life. I don't want to do good things with my life. That's our choice. Jesus tells us at the end of this parable that that's not the right choice to make, but that is our choice. But we also have to ask ourselves this question. Am I going to use or am I going to neglect the gifts that I've been given to build up the kingdom? Eventually, the nobleman returns, now crowned king. And he calls these three subjects in and he says, okay, guys, <laughs> it's time for me to see what you've done with these mina that I've given you. And the first guy shows up and he said, sir, here's your mina and here is 10 more <laughs> that I have gained from it. And, and, and the ruler is very, very pleased. And he said, here's 10 cities to, for you to be in charge of, right? And the second guy comes and, and he's got, he gives his mina and he said, here's my mina and here's five more. And he said, very good. <laughs> You're in charge of five cities. And finally, the third guy comes, and he's got a little rag in his hand. And he reaches down into that rag, and he pulls out that coin, and he says, here's your mina back. He said, I, I knew that you were a hard man, and that you harvest and gather where you didn't plant. And out of fear, I took this, this gift, and I buried it. Here's this, just as you gave it to me. Now, you might think, well... <laughs> he would at least be happy they didn't lose it. But as Jesus told both of these parables, he said that the master was not happy at all. In fact, he was very, very displeased. He had given that gift that it might be invested and used. 
And the man rightfully observed that there was a great deal of risk in investing that gift. And guess what, guys? That risk still exists in the world today. If you're going to stay on purpose, if you're going to live your life for the glory of God, there's a great deal of risk that's involved in that. For one thing, you're going to have to deny yourself. We're going to have to push through those distractions that we talked about earlier of, of wanting to be comfortable in life and wanting to have power and control and wanting to be famous and well thought of by everyone around us because sometimes having a, have, accomplishing God's purpose in our life just isn't going to work with, with our own personal comfort and our own personal control and our own personal fame. But there's also an additional risk of that too, right? Because when we start to really kind of use uh, our talents for, for the glory of God, we begin to kind of put ourselves out there. And that's kind of scary. We recognize that the, the stakes are, are really, really high. <laughs> it's going to involve risk. It's going to involve service. It's going to involve humility. Jesus, Jesus wants us to get comfortable using all three of those things. Living out our mission, not forgetting why we're here is always kind of a costly thing to do. But on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus did something really special. The disciples all gathered in for a meal that they didn't know would be their last with Jesus. Jesus knew that within a few hours, the whole world, their whole world was gonna get flipped on its head. And Jesus shows them just how much he loves and cares about them. This morning, Jacob is gonna come and he's gonna prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper by reminding us of what Jesus did next. What Jesus did when he began to care for the physical needs the people that were around him.